Welcome back to Foster.Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families, as well as professionals. My name is Chris, and I'm an education coordinator at Foster Adopt Minnesota. And I'm Sunny, also an education coordinator here at FAMI. We are continuing to think about spring and our second annual spring summit to be held throughout the month of April. Sunny, we will have three guests with us today. Who do we have first? Well, first, we are thrilled to start with Brianna Sig and Stephanie Coleman. They will be sharing a little about their upcoming webinar, Supporting Families Providing Care to LGBTQ+, on Tuesday, April 11th, Central Time. That webinar will be geared towards professionals, but all are welcome to join. During this webinar, we will get to know Brianna and Stephanie a little better, as they are so important to our foster and adoption communities in Minnesota. After we wrap up this segment, we will introduce Mariah Rooney. Let's get to our guests and let them introduce themselves. So welcome, Brianna and Stephanie. Hi. Hi. We're happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're going to try not to talk over each other, so it'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, Brianna, do you want to share a little bit about yourselves for our listeners? Yeah, so um, I'm Brianna. I am a licensed independent clinical social worker. Uh, I got my degree um, at the University of Minnesota in 2018. That is actually where I met my lovely wife, Stephanie, who's here with me today. Um, I work as a therapist at Lynn Lake Psychotherapy and Wellness, and I also have a, my own practice called Curiosity Counseling and Consulting, where I do a lot of um, presentations, trainings, consulting, and some individual therapy and things like that. Um, yeah, that's me. And then I'm Stephanie. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I am the Director of Social Work for the Domestic Adoption Programs at Children's Home and Lutheran Social Service of Minnesota. Um, so in my role, I oversee our foster care and foster care adoption program, infant adoption program, and pregnancy services, and then our education team. I am also a licensed independent clinical social worker uh, and have been in the adoption field for about seven and a half years now. Great. And I'm just going to give a shout out to the University of Minnesota because we have three grads here today. Woo! Yay! That's a lot. It's exciting. That's awesome. yeah, cool. And go Virginia Tech. Okay. <laughs> I like can't admit that I'm a gopher because I went did my undergrad at Madison, so I'm like such a badger at heart. So Ooh. I have a hard time admitting that I'm a gopher. But I don't know we if we can continue this podcast. I know <laughs> we have it's, it's a dueling thing in our house. So yeah, that's at least that's... she's a Vikings fan though. So we have that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll get over it then. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, then we should probably start with Brianna then and learn a little bit more since she's a true gopher. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, throughout your career, Brianna, have you always been working with LGBTQ plus youth? And when did your passion about working with children, adolescents, and adults with marginalized identities really grow? Actually, I did not start out working with LGBTQ youth. Uh, a lot of my background is in like community mental health. I've worked a lot with adults who have a diagnosis of a serious and persistent mental illness. So I've worked in um, community mental health centers doing mental health case management. I worked at HCMC or Hennepin Health doing inpatient medical social work as well as working in their psychiatric uh, emergency department. Um, so working a lot with adults with SPMI diagnoses and trauma um, I, it's kind of interesting because when I did case management, 
and we would have like an LGBTQ client come through because I am the gay, I was the gay case manager. A lot of times I would get those referrals and they'd be like, Hey, do you think you could take this person? They identify as LGBTQ. And I'd be like, sure. Like, that's great. Um, However, it was, it wasn't intentional, but it, I really enjoyed doing it. And I really was able to kind of connect um, on both a personal level, but also just really understanding kind of the, the barriers and the things that they're facing over and over, especially within um, the community and like mental health, accessing mental health services, um, accessing gender affirming care and things like that. I started to get more and more involved. And then when I went to Lynn Lake and started doing individual therapy, um, I started getting a lot of referrals for transgender and non-binary clients. Um, it was something that I like had worked with before. Like I had, I had worked with trans and non-binary clients before. It wasn't like my specialty necessarily, but the more and more I started working with these clients, I just, I, I love them. I love working with them. I love being able to be a support and an ally. And so I've really, really embraced that. And the majority of my case would now hold, you know, most of my clients hold gender expansive identities or identify as LGBTQ, whether they're coming for that reason or not. Um, a lot of them are coming for completely, you know, completely different reasons. Um, and then started to get a lot of youth referrals and adolescent referrals for um, kids who are exploring gender, exploring sexuality. Um, and it's just been awesome to work with families and work with those with those kiddos who just are so fun to work with. And just they have the best viewpoint on everything. And I feel like I learned so much from them. So that's kind of where I've started to, to kind of gear my practice towards. Um, and I'm just loving it. So it's it's become such a passion of mine. That's awesome. Um, so Stephanie, let's go move on to you. And you started working directly with youth in foster care, seeking permanency and being a voice for them. And you also work with adoptive families by educating and supporting them throughout the process. And where did you see the biggest need for services and support between both youth and families to bridge the gap? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And um, in just like processing my evolution of my role in my career, like you said, starting directly with youth was, I feel like a really wonderful way to start. You really understand the perspective of youth in foster care when talking about adoption and permanency, like what does that mean to them? What do they need? And what, especially like in a transition and, and kind of moving towards a permanent option was really interesting. And then working with adults and the pre-adoptive families, I think the biggest gap that I continued to see um, was services for the family. I think so often when kids are in foster care, they have their like set of team assigned to them and their needs. And then adoptive families have their worker that is assigned to them and like their assessment and their process. But what I saw was really missing was a, like a support person for the whole family. And I think we would often refer to like family therapy to help with that, but wait lists were exhaustive. And so we needed something like faster. And I think at Children's Home and LSS, we had the benefit to um, get some additional grant funding to provide a family support coach service to be able to like really serve the whole family and have seen just like drastic success rates and just the additional support that they got of like, this is a person for your family, for the stabilization of your family. And like when a child moves into a new home or a parent, like in a family adds a new child to their family, like that is going to 
just naturally like rock the boat and like shake up everything. And you need a support person that can really help you identify what what's happening and help with that transition. And so I feel like that was the biggest gap was just that the a family focused worker, because there's so many other people focus on a lot, like their specific roles within the, the adoption process too. And I think that really ties into like the training that we're doing too, because, yeah. you know, there are a lot of focuses on like the individual who's, you know, LGBTQ holding that identity and then the parent and how they support or how they, how they process that, how they're feeling about it. But when we take a step back, it's really about like, how do we support this family so that they can continue to connect with each other? Mm -hmm. Because that's the goal, right? We want these parents to and caregivers to be able to connect with these youth so that they remember that that's what's important. That connection is important. Doing things together as a family and getting to know each other and getting to understand each other better is such an important part. And I think having that family focus and really understanding and encouraging that, I think is so important. And so it ties in a lot with that and maybe bridging that gap a little bit you know, on this end as well. No, I love that. I love that you're focusing on connection. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Um, are, are there other areas of focus that you guys have changed since you started working? Ooh, I don't know. I think, I think the biggest one for me is I've always been like, I don't want to work with families. It's hard. <laughs> um, but she would like say to me, like, how do you work with families? Like there's so much, so many dynamics. It's so complex. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, welcome to my, my world. <laughs> yeah. And so, but, but when I'm working with youth, like you have to work with the family, you have to look at it from a family system perspective. You have to include the dynamics and you have to, you have to support the parents and the caregivers as well, because it plays the biggest role. And so mm. I'm, I'm starting to recognize that that was kind of my own insecurity of like, this mm. is hard and scary and I don't know what to do. Um, and so now that I've leaned into it a little bit, I, I do really love it. And I think it's helped me kind of challenge myself with boundaries and being able to be really transparent about what my role is and what I can and cannot help with. Um, and just kind of, trusting my own instincts too, because sometimes I am a bit of a people pleaser. And so in my professional work, I've had to really like kind of stay firm with some of my, um, my expertise. And that's been, it's been a fun, fun challenge, but it's helped me be able to kind of embrace that family work so much more. And so it's been different. It's not something that I ever anticipated doing, but, um, it's, it's been really wonderful. So yeah, ever evolving. Still hard though. <laughs> oh, for sure. Ever evolving. That's wonderful. Um, so what do you think has been the biggest shift with research with LGBTQ plus since you started? I think I can I can answer that. I think um Brianna brought her stats for this. Nice. <laughs> Thanks for calling <laughs> me out. Steph. Uh, I well, did Steph, bring have to bring some stats too. Yeah, yeah. see, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's important because these stats are just, I think they're so stark and so mm -hmm. um, eye-opening. And I think it just, it speaks to the importance of this topic so much. So according to the Trevor Project does this awesome survey every year where they collect information on LGBTQ youth mental health. Um, and there are some statistics that were just so like, they felt shocking, but they felt so like, uh, like not shocking kind of at the same time, which is really hard to see. But um, according to some of these surveys, 78% of LGBTQ youth were either removed or ran away from a foster placement due to direct hostility because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And so when we think about that, these are kids who are experiencing 
things that adults sometimes don't ever have to go through, right? Like they're being displaced, they're losing caregivers, they're losing loved ones, they're having these huge disruptions specifically due to who they are. And so when we talk about attachment and development, like, wow, what an impact that's going to have. Um, and so that's something that's just been huge. And we're seeing more and more of those statistics coming out that are making it really clear of like how important it is to focus on caregivers and how they offer support and, and the types of systems that fam or systems that youth have in place to help them continue to build that confidence and that identity. And so we also which is a little more positive of a, of a statistic is that with like with family support at home, there's a 52% decrease in suicidal thinking. And so that's a huge decrease, right? So we can't protect kids from the world, but if we create a safe space at home, they're going to have positive outcomes. They're going to be able to like grow and learn about themselves. And it's going to be a much, much safer and better experience for them. And so that's, those are really big things that we're seeing. Um, and so that shift on kind of how do we create these safe spaces and the support? And then at the same time, understanding that generational shift too. Um, that's, I think one of the biggest things, right? Because youth these days are teaching us so much about gender. They, they have this uh, gender and sexuality, they challenge the boundaries so mm -hmm. much more, right? They they have the ability to use internet and they see representation and they're able to have these conversations that, you know, me in the 90s <laughs> didn't really have that. And so, you know, I remember sitting in my room when I was a teenager, like watching this rated G show called South of Nowhere, which I'm sure other lesbians who are my age under totally know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but like, it's a rated G. The most that they do is maybe kiss. And I remember watching this in my room with like the door locked thinking I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm watching this thing. But like, it wasn't a bad thing. It was great. Um, but kids these days are able to have those conversations. They're able to see on regular television, like not mm -hmm. even cable television. They're able to see LGBTQ people living their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and it it is something that is really, really shifting the way that we view like labels and the gender binary and things like that. And so that's one of the biggest shifts I've seen is like that generational change with youth being able to be like, no, why can't I do that? Mm -hmm. Like, no, this is, this is how I feel. And this is me. And so there's no rule that says I like, there's no real rule that says I can't do this. Um, and it's just been really, really cool to see. And so I feel like adults have a lot to learn from the youth and the generations coming up right now. And then I think Sunny, to like, go back to your original question, just about how the research has shifted. I think using all the information that Brianna just provided and kind of using it as a context and then bringing it into the adoption community and foster community. It's like, there's also a lot of research coming out and recently that talks about the adoptee experience and the impacts of trauma and attachment. And, and when you put those two together, like if you're in foster care and you're coming out to a foster parent who then like rejects you for your identity, that's a further layer of rejection. And it's a further layer of like disrupted attachment with that caregiver and causes additional harm. And so we want to be really mindful about what we're doing to prepare those families to assess them and to educate them on the front end so that there isn't further harm added to the LGBTQ youth that are in foster care. So that's really what we're learning and like trying to integrate into the conversation that we're going to be having with you all in April is just how can we take all this information and research and then do better for the kids. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the layers that you're talking about 
what's striking me is that it's not dissimilar from what people of color experience. Mm -hmm. And so the layers, you have the first layer of adoption trauma, and then you have the next layer of the LGBTQ on um, trauma as well and the rejection yeah as well as totally. it, you know, the it's very similar to what we experience mm-hmm. as people of color yep. so in the intersectionality uh, there yeah. right like yes. how many how many lgbtq youth of color right are experiencing continued layered trauma right back to back and like you know when we talk about um black trans women, right? Like they're mm-hmm. experiencing violence at an exponentially higher rate. And so being able to recognize those similarities in oppression. And I talk a lot about like the minority stress model of like, mm-hmm. what is that like going into even get care to have access to care with all of these layers in place? And how does that prevent people and create health disparities later on, right? Like there's so many layers that kind of contribute. So if we're not supporting youth now, they're going to continue to struggle and they're going to have these issues. And it's not because of their identities. It's because of the way that society treats them and the access and the, and the resources and the things like that. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be better at advocating, um, not just for in the home, but like outside of the home, that's also professionals role. And that's also caregivers roles as well. Mm-hmm. I love that you said it's not because of their identities, but it's because of the outside. So yeah, if, yeah that's, yep. Beautiful. That should almost be our, our banner, right? <laughs> yeah. Do it. Um, oh, goodness. Do you okay. both find it hard? I'm just going to jump in with yeah. Um, yeah. talking about different parts of Minnesota, like a rural community versus totally. the metro. Is it is it hard to find resources and support for? Yeah, I think 100%. I, we see that all the time in terms of just like resources for foster and adoptive families, but then also like mental health resources for youth and adults. But I think taking that one step further, like the society, like your experience in society in rural Minnesota as an LGBTQ person is also like very alarming in our experience. I feel like there are like, when we go up to my cabin, there are times where our cabin, excuse me, there are times where we're like, <laughs> oh, we're in a grocery store or a gas station in the middle of nowhere. Don't hold my hand. And I think we're like very aware of our relationship, our experience, and then how, um, like just in the spaces that we're in. And I think then we're adults, like we're in a healthy place with our identity and in a healthy relationship. And we have support with people in our family and our communities, and we still feel that way. And so then thinking about foster youth who maybe aren't super secure in their identity are still exploring are with providers that don't understand, or maybe aren't as affirming or supportive in a way that they would want, want or need to be able to explore that also in a community that is not supportive of that as well is just, horrible and heartbreaking when you think about it. And so that's what we're trying to continue to educate families about is like looking at your community and your supports in addition to yourself um, and what you can provide. And and I would even say like, you know, us going from living in Northeast Minneapolis to a suburb, right, where we're not in a rural community by any means, but we're in a much more predominantly white, straight, cisgendered area just, you know, 25 minutes out of Minneapolis. And when we're on walks and someone walks by, I drop Stephanie's hand. And like, I've never had, I've never had a bad experience. I've never had hostility towards me. I've been very, very lucky in those ways. Um, 
but it's still that internal feeling. Right. And so that's something I talk about a lot in those trains of like, how are the messaging, how is the messaging that we get? How does that impact us as we grow up? How does that impact our feeling of safety? And I think felt safety is a really important piece too. And then seeing a lot of my trans clients who live in rural areas where maybe there's one or two doctors and is it safe to be honest in medical settings to, um, to talk to that one doctor. And I hear a lot of uh, trans folks say, you know, I don't want to be going into the doctor and having to educate them on these things about my body and my, my identity when I'm here um, for them to be the expert. And also like, I'm here for something that has nothing to do with this. And they're asking me questions about my trans identity. Right. And so there's a lot of room there for growth. Um, but it's, it's huge as far as resources go too. Um, and unfortunately, even in the cities, there's still a lot of limitations to the, the supports and um, safe spaces for LGBTQ folks to get uh, care. So we, we have a lot, there's a lot of areas of growth. Thank you for sharing your stories too. And, and yeah. hopefully that will help people just think of their own, like how they react and see people and, and yeah. we can all do better and, and you know, thinking about resources too in those areas. Mm -hmm. I didn't even think about a doctor, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause I don't have to worry about it. So yes, yeah. yeah, I used to lie families. to my doctor when I was a teenager, they'd be like, Oh, are you, um, are, do you need any form of birth control? And I'd be like, no. And they'd be like, but are you like active? And I'd be like, yeah. And then I could see their wheels turning like, hmm. wait, what? And I'd be like, I'm gay. <laughs> um, but, but when I wasn't comfortable with yeah, that, I was you know, say, when that's I was like now, when I was in, when I was in like 10th grade and I was still figuring this out, I used to be so nervous because I was like, Oh my God, they're going to ask me about this. And I am like, I'm going to have to lie about it. Um, which isn't good for my, like, I need to make sure that my doctor knows what's going on. Right. In order to be able right. to provide yeah. you with good totally. care. And so I think that's where we see those health disparities come up too, where it's like, if someone was like, asking me about that up front I would have felt a lot more comfortable and safe to be able to be like oh yeah like no I'm I'm in a relationship with a, a woman so I don't need birth control you know oh goodness the work you guys are doing is so important I am so glad I'm so glad that you're doing this so <laughs> we we enjoy and, doing it yeah if yeah. if we can share our story I think Stephanie and I operate on a very like transparent level just in our lives in general and so we uh enjoy being able to like share our experiences and hopefully people are able to kind of connect a little bit differently through that. Totally. Great. All right. So would you guys like to tell us um, about your upcoming webinar in April? Sure. Yeah. I mean, more than what I've like alluded to thus far, but we listen, <laughs> it's very rare. You get to come to a training with like a lesbian power. Oh, so I, <laughs> I cannot believe it. <laughs> anyway, a lot of fun. <laughs> the actual content um, is yeah. Geared towards professionals. We want to use our experience from our professional life, but then also our personal life to be able to inform and educate and help professionals, uh, better help the families that they work with and better, um, assess their support and kind of what their, what support and respect mean to them in terms of caring for an LGBTQ, uh, identifying child. And then how can they maybe adjust their expectations, continue to learn, continue to grow and provide support in a different way or, or a way that the child might need. And so really focusing on various levels of support, kind of if a person's a family saying to you like 
Hey, we're really supportive of this. But then when you ask further follow-up questions of like, maybe like, what would it mean in this situation? And all of a sudden their answers are like, eh, you might be supportive on paper, but like not in action. And so really kind of working on how to push people past that and provide better support to them and education on the impact. And I think then going back to what we were talking about earlier of the connection. And so really shifting professionals to have that be the focus of their conversation with families is the the connection that they're feeling to their child. And even if they're really uncomfortable with the their gender or sexual identity exploration, that doesn't impact or that shouldn't impact their ability to connect to them and be present and like validate their experiences and emotions. And I think that's a lot of the work that I've done in in the adoption community is just with especially with families is just you can validate experiences and feelings and behaviors without like necessarily agreeing with them or like yourself. And I think recognizing that that's the important part is that emotional safety and like the emotional connection for children, uh, especially when they're facing like societal rejection or like hard experiences at school or in like a doctor's appointment, like we were talking about, like they need someone in their corner and someone alongside them. And so we want to help professionals better support families in order to do that. And I think a big part of that is also uh, challenging professionals to explore their own biases and their own experiences and talking about how they show up in the work that they're doing, you know, and challenging cisnormativity and challenging heteronormativity and like, how do kids know that you're a safe person right off the bat, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what are, what are the ways that you practice that show this? How do you, how do you recognize, like, how much time do you spend recognizing how your own experiences influence the work that you do? And I think in, with LGBTQ youth and families in particular, I think uh, it's just a great opportunity to kind of take a step back and really challenge our understanding of, like, the gender binary, the things we see, the things we experience on a day-to-day basis, and how does that impact our work? And so, really trying to allow room to challenge that and give space for the understanding of like, there's a lot of nuances that come with working with LGBTQ youth that even other youth who have experienced trauma, like they, like we talked about earlier, those layers, right? Like there are still gonna be layers there, but this adds that other layer um, on top of it. And so how do we understand that? And how do, how do we use what we understand to then better support the family? And so kind of doing that combination a little bit, I think is going to be really beneficial for professionals just to be able to also feel more comfortable. I think sometimes people make, uh, they worry about making mistakes. They worry about not knowing enough to show up, but as professionals, we sit in ambiguity all the time. We, we deal with issues that we aren't like specialized in all the time. And you don't have to have this like perfect, amazing understanding to be able to really work with LGBTQ families and show up in, in those spaces. Um, and be a great support. And so I think just understanding some of those nuances just helps people feel a little more confident, a little more comfortable being able to do that work. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that we can provide that for professionals. You will absolutely be able to provide that. <laughs> good. I hope so. <laughs> I'm excited. Um, okay. We are too. So, <laughs> good, good, good. So what would you like to, would you like to leave our listeners with a tidbit of advice? For me, I want everybody to just remember that like we're working with kids, right? Like the bottom line, kids just want to feel safe. They want to feel loved. They want to feel like they belong somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is the be all end all of this. And kids should be able to have fun. Kids should be able to enjoy themselves and to like learn about themselves in a way that feels really, really like 
it shouldn't, it shouldn't feel so hard. And so I want people to remember that, like at the end of the day, we just need to show up for kids and let them be kids. Right. And so if we can be doing this work to give them more room to be teenagers and make mistakes and cause ruckus and just (laughs) be teenagers and kids, like that's the goal here. And I think continuing to do this work is going to allow that. And I think everybody just needs to remember, like, we're just here to, we're just here to help the kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And I think like my tidbit that I would leave is that we're also like, we don't expect professionals to be perfect and like have Mm -hmm. a good understanding of how to do this right away. And we don't expect, like, we don't expect that of families either. And so I think what we do look for and what we hope for is that people are curious and people are open-minded and like are willing to learn and put in the work to, to better support um, and better show up for the kids ultimately, because the work that we do, the kids are at the center at all times, no matter what. And so we want to make sure that we can continue to grow and learn and evolve to be the best for them, um, especially as society's changing and the experiences that they have continue to evolve. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> so I have one last question, but it might cause some controversy in your home. And oh, we're, we're that good. is fun. We have very good communication. <laughs> we're two social workers in a relationship. It's, and it, it may, cause, may cause some controversy in your profession. So if you don't want to answer it, you can pass. Okay. Let's hear it. Pizza or tacos? Oh. Listen, <laughs> Stephanie bought me a, pizza, a wood fire pizza oven for my birthday. It's amazing. So we've been doing homemade pizza nights on Fridays. So right now, oh my gosh, my favorite restaurant is a Mexican restaurant. This is a really hard question. It's it's, it's not causing conflict between us. It's causing conflict between me and myself. I think, I think, I think Stephanie should answer first. It's tough. It is. I was going to say, I like previously would have said tacos because I like wasn't a huge pizza person, but because of the wood fire pizza oven and just yeah I 100% pizza I feel like you can I'm in a pizza pizza place in I'm my life right ta- now I'm gonna go with tacos <laughs> I just think there's so many variety of tacos same with pizza though I know but I know Brianna makes a sassy pineapple pizza that has that's like what I called it the sassy pineapple, pineapple and jalapeno and honey drizzled on it it's amazing so I copied it from a pizza. restaurant but okay. <laughs> we're coming over so what's your dinner, dinner at Brianna and Stephanie's yes <laughs> dinner with Brianna and Stephanie you can enjoy it while we have a great conversation yes <laughs> please tune in yeah <laughs> honestly this is a pretty good idea <laughs> oh well I thank you so much Brianna and Stephanie for joining us today it's just been a pleasure to yeah thanks for the opportunity and we're looking forward yeah. to continuing the conversation in April and I'm just yes. so I'm just so appreciative of fam, right? That's the new, yeah. <laughs> the new thing. Um, I'm just really appreciative of you, your organization always being open to having these conversations around mm-hmm. LGBTQ youth because they are so important. And and unfortunately, we haven't been able to have a lot of these in the past. And so being able to really start to open that up and allow people the opportunity to come and learn. And I just I'm really appreciative that that you're continuing to do these trainings and having these conversations because they're just they're really important and the kids the youth really need it but also like we all benefit from it yeah so it's it's just it's wonderful and so I'm I'm very grateful for it yeah we're grateful to have people like you to help us move forward with with things like this and topics it's fun I I have a great time doing it so (laughs) 
All right. If you are interested in hearing Brianna Sig and Stephanie Coleman present, please go to our website and register for their webinar, Supporting Families Providing Care to LGBTQ+, at famadoptmn.org. Our spring summit is free to all. The date and time again is Tuesday, April 11th, from 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. Central Time. If you can't make it to the live webinar, we will have it available in our webinar library. Well, let's get to our next guest, Mariah Rooney. Mariah is a psychotherapist and so much more. Her responsibilities include supporting capacity building to prevent and address the effects of violence and trauma within individual agencies and schools, national and state agencies, statewide coalitions, and multi-agency collaboratives. We are thrilled to have her as part of our spring summit and as our guest today. Mariah has an upcoming webinar, Parts of You, Parts of Me, on Tuesday, April 11th from 12.30 to 2 p.m. Central Time. So welcome, Mariah, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So let's just get started. So you've worked in so many settings from outpatient, adjunct faculty at Winona State, specialty care settings, focusing on areas from gender-related violence to military trauma. Was there a common theme or need that led you to co-founding Trauma-Informed Weightlifting? which is a program of the Center for Trauma and Embodiment. Yeah, you know, the through line in all of my work is trauma. And um, it's, it's what's really cool is that there's so many different directions that you can go in in this work. And that ultimately one of the, I think the great values of what's happening and has been happening in our field for some time is that we're getting clear and clear on remembering. I really do think it's a remembering that our bodies are super central in how we experience trauma, how we heal from trauma, how we relate and connect to one another. Uh, and I've been a big fan of different trauma and for movement modalities for a long time, particularly when I think about supporting the kids and the families that I work with. And it just so happens that I've been a weightlifter for quite a long time and, um, and saw some real opportunity, uh, both because of many of the stories that I heard from fellow weightlifters about what brought them into weightlifting. Many times it was taking care of their mental health or getting away from environments that didn't feel safe or weren't safe, um, an outlet for things that they were feeling. Um, and then also just seeing generally that in, in kind of the exercise world that we have some real problems, there's a lot of toxicity. So there's also a lot of opportunity to make those spaces more accessible and more welcoming and inclusive and also more trauma-informed for kids and adults so that those spaces and those ways of moving our bodies can be um, safer. And, and ultimately what we're aiming to do is to build some evidence that weightlifting can be an adjunctive treatment for folks um, as they're healing from trauma. That's a great connection. Um, so what's your, what's your weightlifting specialty? Are you like squats, bench? <laughs> I wouldn't say anyway. I've I did, I had a brief stint back in the day as a competitive weightlifter and quickly moved on from that. Um, mostly because I, to me these days, honestly, it's anything that lets me live my life. It's when I have to move a dresser or help a friend move or, um, you know, the random things that we just have to do in life. Um, for me, it's really about moving my body in ways that lets me do the other things that I really enjoy. Um, getting outside, you know, I'm a rock climber, so helps me climb rocks and hike and, um, do things like that. But yeah, I enjoy it. Oh, all. I love it. So the moving, 
Yeah, my daughter is moving in a few months. Can I get your number? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Good for you. Um, okay, so how has the focus changed since you started in your profession? How's the focus changed? Uh, do you mean how has how has my focus changed oh, since I started? Yes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, I I got into this work with the intent intention, I should say, of focusing on trauma. So that really hasn't changed. I think what's evolved for me more is how I understand trauma and how I work with people who have experienced trauma. Um, I was really fortunate to um, spend some time working at the trauma center in Boston. And during that time was surrounded by really wonderful teachers and mentors who did really integrative and innovative work. And it opened my eyes up to how little I knew. And I am so grateful. You know, I, I got to study, you know, with, with people who were developing things like SMART, um, sensory motor arousal regulation treatment, and, and the developers of ARC, the attachment regulation competency framework, like these, these ways of being um, with kids and with families and adults as well, uh, that to me felt really transformative, that felt much less formulaic and more about understanding trauma you know, in terms of systems and our bodies and our, ner- our nervous systems. And um, I love that. So for me, I think um, that's probably been the biggest transformation or evolution, I should say, of my work is just continuing to get closer and closer to um, the creativity that we can tap into in our healing um, when we're open to stepping outside of the boxes that we often get put in in this work. Mm, I love how you meld the two. The, the lifting and the trauma work that's um, very much out of the box. So good for you. Um, okay, so can you tell us a little bit about your topic of how understanding the complex inner worlds of young people and ourselves can bring more compassion and connection to our relationships? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I'm really excited to have the conversation mostly because I am a total nerd for parts work. Uh, which is what we're going to be talking about. And I'm a nerd about it because I not only firsthand have experienced how transformative parts work has been in my own, um, my own therapy and my own work, but also I get to see with, you know, the folks that I work with of all ages, how incredibly transformative it is to shift out of this understanding of us being this like one kind of cohesive singular being to understanding that our inner worlds are made up of all kinds of different um, parts and that they all make sense, that they all serve a purpose. And that ultimately we have, you know, parts of us that sometimes we don't like very much, but when we take this approach and we'll talk about this during the webinar, that we get to understand the function and purpose of every single part of us and of our kids, right. Of our partners, of family members, and then you can separate that particular behavior or that particular thing away from, not away from the person. I don't want to say that, but you could separate it away from maybe the totality of the situation and just say like, this is a part that I know in my kid that really hurts sometimes. And when this part of my kid is really hurting, they really lash out and they kick and they throw and they yell and they tell me that I'm the worst and they curse or whatever it is. But it's not, you're not just looking at your kid in that moment and saying, gosh, they're being such a jerk. You're saying this part of my kids have a really hard time. And 
I love how much compassion that can breathe into our understanding of one another. And then for ourselves, right? It's like, I'm, I can know that I have a part of me that when I feel really unheard, or if I feel really unseen, that it tends to, I call it my lashy part, it lashes out. And that part is trying to get a need met. Like the lashy part is just showing up in that moment, maybe getting a little louder, a little reactive, um, trying to get a need met. And now it doesn't mean I want it to show up all the time. I'm doing some work on that. But ultimately, like I can have a gentler, um, more curious, I would say, understanding of, of, of myself and other people when I, when I start to understand our multiplicity in that way. So are you saying, what I think I'm hearing you saying is that we're not defined by a singular part? Yeah. Mean? Yeah. And this is a tricky one because different schools of thought will say different things, right? Like okay. some frame, like in, for example, in internal family systems, they talk about the capital S self and that that's really kind of like your most authentic, genuine being. Um, I happen to also work with a number of folks who have, who have dissociative identity disorder, which is a uh, survival strategy and an adaptation to experiencing very complex developmental trauma. And so for some folks that I work with, like that idea doesn't work and it can feel actually invalidating to not acknowledge kind of the, the wholeness of their entire system. So I don't, I, I'm certainly not dogmatic about how I think about it. It's more like, let's talk and let's see what fits for a person. Um, you know, I, I, I love that for me and my understanding of myself, that I have kind of multiple parts that feel really authentic and genuine and, and true and real for me and aligned for me. Um, and that some of them are very different, you know, that, that I get to show up in the world and in my life in these different ways and have all of that be very genuine and real. Um, and then for other people, having that kind of core self feels much more true. So I, I certainly don't think that there's one way to think about it. Um, but every, every part of us matters and they all serve a purpose and they all learned how to do a job somehow, some way. And how similar that is to your rock climbing passion too, like how things rely on each other so much and, you know, you yeah. have to have trust and everything has to be in the right place for it to be successful. Yep, that's so true. And it's a it's an interesting point because I'm actually working on a project right now of um, developing some trauma trainings for rock climbing coaches that work with youth. Um, but then also we're going to do some workshops for trauma impacted youth and adults using rock climbing as a way to experience exactly what you're talking about, which is um, communication, trust with your belayer, right? Like who's your climbing partner? How are you talking to each other? Um, what's it like to take a fall and have someone catch you, you know, these things that are, that can be really terrifying, but also are kind of an embodied way, I think of experiencing something that some people haven't really experienced before. That is very cool. It's kind of like wilderness therapy in a way. Yes. Adventure. Definitely. Sweet. Yeah. I love the literal and figurative metaphors all rolled into one that is Mariah. All over the place. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so yeah. excited to see your see your um, webinar on April 11th. Um, okay, so before we leave, uh, what is one tidbit of advice you have for our listeners? Oh gosh, you know, one of the things that actually drives some of my clients nuts is that I don't, <laughs> I'm not an advice giver, at least in that context. Um, so maybe it's not advice as much as 
just an invitation, I guess, or an offering um, to think about just even something as simple as we move through our, in terms of parts work, I should say. Um, we move through our lives all the time saying things like a part of me this and a part of me that, a part of me wants this, a part of me wants that, a part of me feels this way, a part of me feels that way. And that just start to pay attention to that and to notice how that is such an indicator of you know, when we experience internal conflict, or even when we feel like incongruent with ourselves, but that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you, that there's actually a lot of information in that, and that the opportunity is really to listen to that and be curious about that, and then um, to learn a little bit more about your inner world, um, and obviously we'll talk about that more in April, and then sometime this year, I don't know when, later this year, I'll be launching a, a website that's going to be just a resource kind of laid in place for people to get information about parts work with a lot of different um, resources, activities, practices, um, with the aim of making that really accessible to people. I don't want it to be, uh, uh, so for example, if someone can't afford it, that's fine. They can come and they can access those resources. So we'll, we'll um, I'll look forward to being able to share some of the people down the road. And well, you're based in Colorado, right? Sorry. Now I am. Mm-hmm. Now you are. Yep. My, my practice is in, is primarily in Minnesota and the Twin Cities. That's where most of my clients are. I moved here during the, the lockdown stage of the pandemic. Um, and so, yeah, now I physically reside here. But my practice is primarily in Minnesota. So would you like to plug your website name? Oh, sure. It's currently very much under construction, but um, to be relaunched soon, it's Mariah Rooney, L-I-C-S-W.com. Yeah. And then trauma-informed weightlifting, that website is just that. It's traumainformedweightlifting.com. And then the parts resources website um, will, I don't, I don't have that ready yet, but I can certainly share it when it is down the road. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a little more put together in April, a few months left. That would be great. (laughs) And I just have, I was going to start, started to ask our spring summit presenters a question, but you know, it might be controversial, might for your colleagues, if you answer this the wrong way, so you don't, you can pass, but (laughs) pizza or tacos? (laughs) (laughs) I know it's hard. Um, I don't, that, that feels like a, like, uh, kind of impossible depends <laughs> on the mood and it depends on the pizza and it depends on the tacos. There's too many, there's too many dependencies. I think I couldn't pick one. Yeah, it is okay. hard. It's tough. And that's good yes, to be yes. neutral too. Food neutral. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank well, you so it... much for having me. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to yeah, leave us with and I think I am excited to connect with, with the folks in April. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us this afternoon. If you are interested in hearing Mariah Rooney present, please go to our website and register for her webinar, Parts of You, Parts of Me, at famadoptmn.org. Our spring summit is free to all. The date and time again is Tuesday, April 11th, 2023, from 1230 to 2 o'clock p.m. Central Time. If you can't make it to the live webinar, we will have it available in our webinar library. Thank you so much for joining us today for Let's Talk. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon.